apparently these nuclear planners, there's a profound amount of um, groupthink among them. They're very bubbled off, very isolated. Um, and that may yield some of the irrationality behind nuclear planning as well. So I think it's also, uh, I interviewed a guy, and this is a story I don't think anybody knows about but me. I mean, I published the interview, but mainstream media doesn't pick up on it. I, I interviewed a guy, Lester Ernest comes out of the air, uh, military, uh, in the, one of the first computer sections of the armed forces, late 1950s, goes, gets hired by MIT. Uh, they're developing uh, a defense system against Soviet nuclear bombers. And this is the, when you see the big board in Dr. Strangelove, you know, where the movie, and you see where they can track with lights, everything coming in, they have this brilliant radar system. And uh, so he gets hired to do command and control uh, for, for the system uh, at MIT and the, the, over 25 years, a trillion dollars. Anyway, he's there, he's there for about a week and he asks one of his colleagues there, he says, how did you guys solve the radar jamming problem? And there's this long silence. He says, the guy says, well, we don't talk about that. And Lester says, well, if you didn't solve the problem of radar jamming, then what's the point of all this? Uh, the answer was, well, we don't talk about that. The whole thing was bullshit. The greatest uh, creation or harnessing of computer power in history, warehouses and warehouses of computers to uh, control these radars systems. Uh, that the radar part of the system was Bomark missiles uh, that they would then shoot down these Soviet air aircraft with, guided by the, this massive computer system. Um, never worked because of radar jamming. They wouldn't discuss it because there was so much money to be made. And, and then Lester, after about a year, year and a half there, uh, he's asked to go to the Pentagon and Congress and persuade them that Bomark missiles should have nuclear weapons on their tips. And he, and, and, and I said, hold on, you're going to have a, a Soviet nuclear bomber flying over Canada and the United States, and you're going to shoot it down with a nuclear weapon. So you're going to have a nuclear weapon blowing up nuclear weapons over North America, and that's your defense strategy. I, I said, that's insane. He said, of course it's insane. I said, did you go to the Pentagon and Congress? He said, I did. And did they agree? He, they did. And they did arm Bullmark missiles. I said, why did you do it? He said, we're all making so much money. We were so cynical. And if we didn't do it, somebody else would. And it was just the classic scenario. That, that line, if I don't do it, somebody else will do it. I might as well make the money. And he also and his colleagues figured, you know, the world's going to be blowing up sooner than later anyway, so what the hell? The, the profound nihilism, uh, cynicism, uh, a bubble of denial, you know, fueled by how much money you make, 
And it's easy to rationalize, you know, well, the other side's doing it too. Uh, but that whole system, in fact, there's a study that came out of the 60s, McNamara in the mid-60s, got a study uh, made of this, it's called the SAGE radar system, S-A-G-E. And the study concluded it was nonsense, never would have worked. Trillion dollars. Uh, I mean, there's, that's what I mean. The, the system itself is fundamentally irrational. And nothing more than, than its military thinking and strategy. There's a quote, I think it's in Ellsberg's book, um, from I think a guy named General Power, which is just a hilarious name. Um, do you know the quote that I'm referring to where he says that would really screw up the plan? Uh, Their quote from him is, uh, how do you define victory? At the end of a nuclear war, if there's two Americans and one Russian, it means we've won. That, that was incredibly disturbing stuff uh, to read. Um, so yeah, fantastic. So that sounds like it's going to be an absolutely fantastic project. And uh, I'm very excited. And I think uh, if you look at public opinion, you can ask the two existential threats to the species or to, to organized civilization are climate and nuclear. And you can ask how many people in the public put these issues at the top of the list for those two, right? Um, so for climate, I don't know if events of the last year have moved the needle on that. But on nuclear, I'd, I'd imagine almost nobody thinks that that's a major issue. It doesn't come up in the presidential debates, right? They never ask them about nuclear practically, right? In the United States, it's not really on the radar, right? To some extent, people in the climate movement and, and others, they think it's already so uh, doomsday-ish with climate. Uh, how do you add nuclear? Uh, how do you bring up that topic in the context when there's already a pandemic? Uh, but it's precisely that. Like, are you going to trust people that couldn't deal with a pandemic that they've been warned about for decades? Trust these people with nuclear weapons? You think we're safe now? And these are the people that couldn't figure out to have masks and oxygen when they were told, I mean, there's this movie called, what, Contagion, I think it is, from, what, 1991 or something? It exactly says what happened. I mean, they've been warning after warning, and they wouldn't heed, and we're supposed to trust them with nuclear weapons. And, of course, now we're supposed to trust them on the climate side. They can't, you know, half, half the United States, or what is it, 40%. Don't believe in vaccinations or masks. The same people, more or less, don't believe in climate science. Uh, why? Well, you can, you know, they want to talk about Fox and Trump and blah blah blah. But it's it's the complete evisceration of the public education system in rural America. Uh, that's why do people believe QAnon? Because they know they know nothing about history. Uh, you, I can't say Canada's that much better. Uh, the uh, I knew a young woman who was going to high school. This is 25 years ago. In, in Ontario, had an essay. She had to write an essay about the Nazi, the SS, and and uh, World War II. And she equated the Soviet Union with the Nazi SS. She had them as the same thing. And she got an A-plus on the essay, because I don't think the teacher didn't know the difference. Uh, and, and, and it's a little, 
at least an urban most, I think that's terrible. Yeah, that's an incredible example. But most of the big cities, the public education system is not that bad. But go to rural America. Uh, you know, they're trying to uh, make, if they had their way, they'd have creationism uh, as, a, as a topic of, of science, uh, the, the backwardness. And you have to blame corporate Democrats for this. Because when the Democrats are in power, especially federally at the national level, but even when they were in power in, in these states that have now become Republican, but many of them used to be Democrat, you know, they didn't invest in a public education system that really educated people. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons for the demise is where, where do most of the soldiers come from? Most of the American soldiers come from these rural states with education systems where people learn nothing about, you know, anything real about history or science. And these kids go off to war thinking they're fighting, you know, to save America from something. So, if you did a poll, certainly in the urban centers, you would find people know climate now. I think it's it's much more significant. Uh, now, when I say rural America, uh, certainly 20, 30, even 40% of rural America uh, is probably not so badly educated and does know, many know about climate. You know, in agriculture, they're seeing it. They're seeing forest fires, they're seeing droughts. So I, I, climate's increasingly on the radar. Uh, but nuclear not even in the cities, not even in the left, not even the most educated sectors of the population. A, a tiny infinitesimal fraction of people are focused on it. And, and, and you know, it, 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 some basic steps could be taken. Uh, certainly Canada could refuse to have anything to do with nuclear weapons. Uh, they don't take that stand. Uh, in the U.S., there, had, there could be, uh, at the very least, uh, get rid of the hair trigger mechanism. That gives very, very little time to make a decision whether something on the radar is real or not. Uh, to, there could be a massive reduction uh, in weapons. There's a whole list of things Ellsberg has proposed uh, that could be done. Uh, and in some ways, and easier than could be dealt with climate, you know, but, uh, yeah, the, the consciousness isn't there. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not that presidential debates are the end-all and be-all, but they are kind of like a litmus test of what's on the radar. And you see uh, there wasn't a climate debate. There was going to be, and then it got canceled, right, with the, in the Democratic primary. But you can't even imagine a nuclear, uh, a nuclear-themed uh, presidential debate. That's, you can't, it's hard to even imagine that, right? Yeah, there, there was one piece of one piece of legislation that was introduced by Markey and I can't remember the other uh, representative uh, calling for a, to stop this new investment in ICBMs, the modernization. Uh, and but it got almost no play in the press. Uh, it's not suddenly going anywhere in Congress. It's something they even introduced it, but it's got no legs. What are the most exciting projects that you know of that others are working on? Well, I'm interviewing a woman named Jane McAlevey. And she's been a union organizer for a long time. 
very successful. And she's she's now training literally thousands of organizers. And I'm doing a, a reality asserts itself with her, which is biographical, but also gets into what she's learned about organizing in the working class. And in unions, but also electorally. But it's to do with real organizing, where you actually get workers to join, either join a union or join an organization. And she makes a very interesting differentiation between advocacy and organizing. And that much of the left is involved in advocacy. You have an issue, you make a lot of noise about it, you get people to sign up for it, uh, you get people to vote in an election. But it actually doesn't organize people into an organization that then has some force. Uh, she's been mostly focused on unions and very focused on winning uh, and getting workers prepared to win strikes. Uh, or, you know, increasingly getting involved also in elections. And it's she calls it a whole worker organizing strategy. So if, you, if you're organizing at a factory, uh, you're not just trying to find the influencers amongst the working uh, force to become the leaders, but you're where do those workers uh, go to church? Where do they, where organizations are they in the community? Where do they play sports? Like you organize everywhere. Yeah, it's called you know, whole worker organizing, and and to me the, that's it's an exciting project because she's she's organizing training so many organizers, but I think in a broader way, that's what the left needs to focus on. We, we the and I include myself in this, but the what we can do in the media is so limited. Uh, it's, it's, first of all, so easy to marginalize progressive media. It's so easy to marginalize progressive organizations that rely on advocacy as opposed to organizing. Uh, the, the, the only way out of all of this mess is a massive amount of, of organizing, and, and including in some ways especially areas of the working class that have been really influenced by Trumpist kind of politics. I'm talking in the U.S. now, but similar stuff happening in Canada. And uh, the, you know, the fact that Ontario, you know, Doug Ford is this right winger and premier of Ontario. He got lots of, uh, it goes back and forth, but uh, the, the, the necessity to, to not rely on this supposed fight for public opinion, when the elites control really all the means of mass communication and mass creation of public opinion. But what they can't control is on-the-ground organizing. And that's where in the U.S. you've seen some breakthroughs, like the uh, progressives that have got elected in by AOC, in, where she in Queens and the Bronx. And, but a lot of progressives have got elected in the New York State Assembly, uh, other parts of the country. It's not always successful, but it, but you know, it hasn't been going on that long. The Bernie Sanders campaign showed some of it. But it was real on-the-ground organizing in communities. And that's that direct contact 
uh, bypasses the elite's control of mass media. And so, so if you're asking me about a pro one project I'm aware of, there's some others too where there's that kind of organizing going on in the U.S. I'm actually not aware of that much going on in Canada. Actually, maybe I'm not. A, it is, and I'm not aware of it. But I, in some ways, I think there's more on the ground organizing going on in the U.S. The problem there is it's so siloed. You know, you got this group's doing that, and that group's doing this, and there's a lot of sectarian fighting goes on. And, uh, the amount of trashing that goes on of, of, by the left of the left, uh, the serious organizers aren't doing that. But a lot of it goes on on the internet. But anyway, I, I anybody, any of these groups that are doing that kind of real organizing, that that I think is not just exciting, especially when it's in the working class, and especially when it's directed towards unions and organizing and organized workers. Uh, it's, I, there's only two hopes we have. One is that, that kind of organizing. And then two, and, I, and I, because of the time frame of climate, there's no alternative to what I'm about to say. Some sections of the elites have got to wake up. They, there are sections of the elites in the billionaire class that just, and there are some already, but even they're marginal. But without some section of the elites, they get the real existential threat of climate and don't just see it as a money-making opportunity, which is where most of the rhetoric really comes down. And it gets serious about the science because the Biden plan, you know, well, something, you know, compared to denial, such a reliance on carbon capture, which is still, at least at any scale that's meaningful, quite unproven. Uh, the time frame for the Biden plan, the time frame for the Trudeau plan, the time frame for, you know, virtually all the advanced capitalist countries is completely out of whack with what the scientists say is necessary. So I'm going to talk more about climate, but uh, and I'd like to. But if you're asking me, it's the projects that excite me are not media projects. They're on the ground organized. Yeah, you talk a lot about BlackRock, and um, it's interesting because, you know, Larry Fink, he he had this letter where he talked about climate ESG, right? That's the corporate trend, right? And it is interesting to see um, kind of moves in the corporate sector towards support for uh, support for decarbonization. What do you make of that, including Larry Fink? He's probably one of the uh, mascots of the whole ESG corporate movement. What do you make of all that? Well, they're they're caught between a black rock and a hard place. Uh, they 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 get it. They see the science, um, but they can't on their own uh, disrupt the laws of capitalism. Uh, so I'll give you an example with BlackRock. Uh, BlackRock said that. There, two things. They were going to reduce their investment in coal. And they said because they are an index fund, that which means they invest in every single thing in an index. So, you know, the S&P 500, they buy the whole S&P 500. 
which is why they own you know a significant voting shares of everything but that includes companies that do coal so fink was interviewed by this guy sorkin and sorkin said asked him well you got this enormous power you and the other asset management companies why don't you lean on the uh, S&P 500 to throw coal out of the index. Tell them you'll stop investing in the index if they don't get rid of coal. Well, of course, Fink had no answer for that. Uh, because, you know, one, they make a lot of money out of all that. And, and two, they, they just wouldn't be, they just won't take it that seriously. Uh, but then Fink announces... Uh, well, on, they also make discretionary investments where they you know, pick and choose stocks. They have funds. Now, BlackRock has, BlackRock has all kinds of funds. So one of them is discretionary. So he says, we won't invest in any company that makes more than 25% of its revenue from coal, mining coal. So it sounds great. Oh, all the big coal mining companies. BlackRock's going to pull out of this investment. The problem is that one of the largest coal mining companies in the United States, I, 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 I think Continental, but I, I could well be wrong with the name, but go look at my article. At any rate, the, I think it's the second largest coal mining company in the U.S. While they're the second largest coal miner, Coal is less than 25% of the revenue. So BlackRock doesn't have to disinvest. So it's just a, it's a sham. I mean, it sounds great, but, but it's meaningless. But let's say BlackRock even does. Let's say start to disinvest from coal. Well, one of the other funds is simply going to buy the shares. They're just going to pick it up. Because unless there's a government intervention, unless the state steps in, and says that everyone's disinvesting from coal by law, then there'll always be a company that says, well, nice for you, BlackRock, but you know maybe you can afford to get out of coal, but we need the money, so we're going to get into more coal. So it, it turns out to be just smoke and mirrors, and Larry Fink knows that. And this is what I mean, they're caught between a BlackRock and a hard place because they know only government intervention, only serious regulation, only laws, not tax maneuvers and not market mechanisms. Although I'm not against them as a secondary tactic, but primary tactic is real laws that phase out fossil fuel. But if you give the state, the government that much power, then the next thing's going to be, well, what, maybe there should be serious regulation of the financial sector, which, of course, there should be, because they almost destroyed the global economy. And, they, and, and the whole finance sector is BS, because of, without public money coming in and, and, and bailing them out of their speculative manias, they would have all crashed and burned in 07, 08, and, and, and since. I mean, even the stock market now is, is, is only, is, you know, soaring like a rocket ship because the Fed is making sure it can't collapse during the pandemic. So, so the, the state is an appendage 
of the financial sector. And so that's the hard rock and the hard place is that they know with climate, it takes that kind of action. But if you take that kind of action, you have to change the nature, certainly of American capitalism, and if not global capitalism. You have to greatly increase the uh, interventionist and the planning. I mean, how do you have a transition without a planned economy? How do you transition from fossil fuel? Like, even the mechanisms that they're talking about, the market mechanism, they're, they're kind of planned economies. You know, trying to push the economy from fossil fuel to sustainable. But it has to be done, like, for real. And how can Black Rocks in the financial sector accept that? Because now you're handing over to something the public might have some control of. Uh, so it's, it's a real conundrum. So there are a few individuals in the elites and the billionaire class, uh, you know, that, that get it, I think. Uh, they don't have that kind of serious power. Um, so, you know, what, Ellsberg has a great line on the nuclear stuff. He says, uh, you got to act as if we're on the Titanic, but there's still time to turn the ship away from the iceberg. And you got to hope that the captain will tell the all he has, this is what I like about his uh, metaphor. He says, you got to hope the captain will pick up the phone and tell the owners of the Titanic to go fuck themselves that we're not going to be in a race and we're going to slow down and at night we're going to stop and we're going to make a safe crossing because it was the owners that wanted to, you know, show they were the fastest boat could do this and do that. Of course, the captain never made that call. So, you know, you can't put a rosy picture on our situation. We're at a very existential moment for the human species. Uh, the, the elites are, you know, right now between, you know, withdrawal of Afghanistan, the rivalry with China, and, you know, all the geopolitical shenanigans. And like I say, the system is fundamentally irrational. At least there's a conversation about climate now. But, you know, that I interviewed that guy, I said, the climate scientist who was the co-lead author of chapter 11 in the new IPCC report that's on my site. Well, his co-author, a woman, I, I think she's Swiss, maybe wrong, but she's European. She was quoted when they released the IPCC report as saying she didn't think she would ever work on another IPCC report. She said, what's the point? It just gets ignored. And it, you know, she, it's, she says it's not a good use of scientists' time. And, you know, it's... I don't know how... We, I'm not sure how we break through the, the, the cultural bubble um, that, that exists, which... And it's, the problem is kind of goes this way. One is... Probably the majority of North Americans, economically, are doing okay and even well. A, a slim majority, but a majority. Um, 
the other section of people who are desperate economically, how do they think about anything but how to survive the month? Um, and then the left is very sectarian. There's a lot of fight goes on. There's no great you know, national organizing movement. Um, so that's where we are. And so, so the hope is that I, I, you asked me another project what I find exciting. I do find exciting in the U.S., uh, less so in Canada, uh, the progressive types that are getting elected at different levels. Those campaigns uh, where they go north, they knock door to door. And, and I, I, as far as I understand it, the Internet organizing plays a secondary role. The Sanders campaign, the Internet played a very big role. But but in the, these individual races, it's real local organizing. Uh, these election campaigns are, are also becoming organizing campaigns. Uh, and there's there's some hope there. But you never know. History's, you know, weird. Sometimes there's, sometimes there's galvanizing events. And all of a sudden, people break out of their inertia and their habits. It happened, you know, in the lead up to the Iraq war. Millions of people around the world demonstrated against the war. It wasn't successful. But it was a moment that was really something. All of a sudden... The, the most interesting thing about those protests uh, were the numbers of people that had never been in a protest before in their life. And all of a sudden, something just broke through. Uh, I've talked about this before with like the, with Katrina and 9-11 to some extent. But every so often, the, the shreds, the, the fabric of American mythology... And it's true for Canada, too. It gets shredded by an objective event. And all of a sudden, people start to see the real world more. You know, with Katrina, you know, when the hurricane hits New Orleans, someone, such a disaster, all of a sudden, the media actually discovered there's such a thing as race and class in America. They even talked about it for about three weeks. Uh, so you know, there might be another galvanizing moment uh, where, where, and I, I just hope that when the moment comes, uh, progressive forces can build on it. You know, I lived in Baltimore for what, eight, nine years or something. When Freddie Gray was killed by the police, there was that kind of moment. Thousands of people came into the streets to protest the murder. Uh, it was really Baltimore. I don't think I've ever seen such a broad uh, support for reform of the police against police abuse and so on. Uh, uh, you know, after the death of Martin Luther King, uh, there was massive protests in Baltimore. But I don't think there was ever the extent to which white students joined in. And they did after Freddie Gray. But there was no organizing. And it all dissipated. So, you know, we, we need to get ready for a galvanizing event. Um, so that when, when a moment comes, and, and, uh, and it will come, I just 
we'll see if it comes soon enough. Uh, uh, will we be able to take advantage of it? That's where we're at. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the interview.